0: I don't want to start uh, the message this morning necessarily by forcing you to be sad or to remember uh, difficult uh, times uh, in your life. But I, I do want you to think about situations uh, that may have come up in uh, the past or in, in, in uh, friends' lives or, or people that you know uh, where an element of desperation has developed. And as you think about that time, as you think about that series of events, uh, I began to think about uh, desperation. And one of the things that pretty much all desperate situations have in common is something has happened that we either didn't want to happen or didn't foresee happening. Okay, so there is some event that has uh, happened that we didn't cause, we didn't ask for, and it has come upon us, and there we are trying to figure it out. So that's number one, that's a very powerful thing uh, that can, can kind of make us uh, begin to stir in some unhealthy ways. Second, uh, because this situation has happened, there is a great deal of unknown That comes about. So, if I'm making a list of things that accompany uh, or cause desperate situations in our lives, it is that there are events uh, that, or something that has happened, or some situation is is confronting us uh, that is beyond our control, and we have no idea what is going to happen. I put uh, this morning as we get back into uh, Genesis. We'll uh, be in sixteen this week, and next uh, the the fallout of this event that Ryan just read for us, we will uh, we will explore in in greater detail as we look at the rest of the chapter uh, next week. But I wanted to go a little bit short on the on the first part uh, because there's a lot of content here. or things that we need to understand, and so I put a title on this of when desperate unknown clouds promises. We left off our study in Genesis at the end of chapter 15. And you would think that the end of chapter 15 is one of those things where the light bulb finally goes off and it's one of those stabilizing things and everybody involved is going to press forward in their lives in this great refreshed obedience and we get to 16 and we don't See that happen. At the end of 15, God had put Abram in this deep sleep and it communicated to him in this very vivid dream, this vision uh, that he gave him. I'm not going to go back into all the details, but basically, what God uh, affirmed to Abram is that he would be the one who is capable of keeping all the promises. He would do it. And he is the God who is worthy of it. And that's the agreement, that's the covenant that he made and affirmed with Abram uh, during this uh, vision at the end of chapter 15. And so we get into chapter 16 and and we see Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. We see this in the very First verse. And so as we go through the outline today, we'll look at Sarai first. Uh, She is in the text first. So we're going to deal with her and her perspective. She is discontent with her circumstances. I mentioned chapter uh, 15. I want us to remember back to that memory verse that we did together, those verses in Genesis 12. We're actually going to look up from where we are. If you have your Bible open, you want to read these out loud, if you want to read these off the screen, we're going to say these together because it really matters that God promised this to Abram, and yet uh, we're still stirring all these years later. We're going to find out about the gap of time. So let's say this, Genesis 12, and 1 through 3 out loud together. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse." and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They remember that? Right? Anybody remember that? We did that, memorized that. Those are great truths. We've got to get a few more hands than that. Anybody remember that? Yes, thank you. We're awake. Yes, we remember that. We're engaging here. Uh, this is what's on the line. This is what's at stake in chapter 16. Is, is it true or is it not? Is God going to make Abram's offspring, the, the families of the earth, are they going to be blessed? Is his name going to be great? Is, is it going to happen? Well, we see Sarai, who is discontent with her circumstances. In their culture, a childless woman, especially of her age, it was a major major, social, spiritual taboo. It was a huge deal. A source of great shame on a woman to not have a child by this stage in her life. And she she certainly had, we can assume, have been told uh, the promise of God uh, that Abram had and that he knew. And she is... Discontent with her circumstances. So, right out of the gate today, we have to be honest. We have to search our hearts. We have to search and consider our relationships. Where are we frustrated with God? The job, somebody's health, afraid relationship, something that happened, a loss that we, where are we frustrated? Where do we in our lives say, God, don't you know that this has happened? Don't you know what you're doing? So she's discontent. And we also can say this morning that she misjudges God's plans. I want to introduce you to a basic Bible study principle. When... You take the "How to Study" the Bible course. We've done it two times already this year. Uh, we'll offer it at least one more time, probably two. So when you take the course, one of the things you're going to learn is, take what the text gives you. Deal with the things that are here. We don't have to we don't have to make up a whole bunch of stuff. We don't have to, in our minds, speculate about uh, what is happening. Let's take what this says. And so, in in, in verse 2, look at, at what she does. Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She is discontent. She misjudges God's plan. Who does she blame for her childless state? the lord let me just give you a quick word of advice blaming god for your situation is generally not good policy it doesn't work very well it doesn't and a, a few of you are smiling a little bit and a couple of chuckles but but don't we do this we're not holding this story up today so we can poke fun at Abram and Sarai and their lack of faith. We don't hold the Bible up to find a fault in somebody else. We hold this up as a mirror so we can look inside. We can say, Lord, would you show me? And if we're, if we're honest, we, we've done this. God, what are you, why, what? So we see right away that she is, is blaming God, verse two, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 3, let's take another thing here. So, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. So, this is a landmark for us. We can go back to chapter 12 that we just read, the memory verses. And we know that 10 years have elapsed between the giving of those promises when he came to Canaan and, and now. Anybody ever waited 10 years for something Anybody ever waited 10 years for something or more? Something right offhand that you can think of. I don't know what you would put on that list. Some of you maybe prayed for a spouse for a long time and said, God, and you just waited that 10 years. Maybe you waited 10 years to replace the car that you secretly despised for 10 years. And you just waited. And you waited 10 years. And sometimes... We, as human beings, think, well, I know that God wants me to wait, and I know that my heart and my mind and my soul can be shaped when I wait, but you know what? This is enough. Ten years is enough, so we're going to do something about it. I'm helping you to understand the discontent, and when we don't understand God's plans, these are, these are ripe places for us to make big mistakes, and so the result for Sarai is blame, and short-sighted action. She blames God. And as we see, she will then begin to blame Abram. And her relationship with her maidservant, Hagar, becomes very adversarial. The short answer is their plan didn't, didn't work, the events here didn't go according to plan like it was somehow Hagar's fault that her master tried to have a child with her. She didn't really blame her husband. She's mad, but she, she should have. We'll talk about him in a minute. I want us to see that this we're back to the beginning here where frustration, something has happened or something is going on and we don't like it. There's unknown. We have the added element here in Genesis 16, of time and it has been forever, and, 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 and this is a, a powerful powerful combination of things, uh, of, like the, the pressure cooker of sin. Made me think of Exodus chapter 32. I put a note in my uh, text over here. In the very beginning of this chapter, uh, here's the first verse, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aren't the same elements in play here? We're supposed to be going into the promised land. That's the plan. Who's this guy, Moses? He let us out. I guess the whole thing with the staff and the split red sea and the drowning. And the I guess that was kind of cool for a minute, but he's not around anymore. So let's get a better God than this. This is a powder keg of sin. This is how it happens. We get impatient. We question God. So what do they do? Exodus 32 and 21 through 24. Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? This is, by the way, after Moses re-enters the story. He's not really gone. Disappeared on the mountain in some mystery. He was with God. Uh, they got impatient, made the other God. So Moses is back. And now he's got some words for Aaron. Here we go. 22. Aaron said... Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. What do we learn? What do we realize? It does not take long for things to escalate to the point of ridiculous! I think this is the most ridiculous sentence in the entire Bible. If not, it has to be in the top five. Well, how came this calf? I was in a hurry, and I pressed the accelerator. And well, lo and behold, I got a speeding ticket. What? We could go on and on. And again, it, it, it may feel like uh, like a punchline or a comedy routine, but but it's not. We have to connect today with this idea of desperation and frustration and the element of time and unknown, because this is where... The seeds of of mistrusting God will be sown in our lives. These are the seeds of disobedience. These are the seeds of sin. And we don't want to have to be on the other end of this and learn a lesson. We want to be able to identify this. And so uh, we want to see this here. So uh, Sarai is not the only person. We're just moving in order. And then uh, Abram is uh, the next person who comes into uh, the into the the story. So after 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, verse 4, and she conceived, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Abram clearly is a partner in disobedience. Now, I want to take us back... To Genesis chapter 3. And uh, those of you that may be sniffing around this morning and wondering why in the world we're going back to chapter 3, I will be very clear uh, with you that my goal in this is not to portray women as instigators always of sin. It just happens in these cases. Okay? Uh, There are plenty of places where men stand on their own as instigators of sin. And then they get other people, uh, men and women, to join them. There are other times where it happens this way. So we're going to learn lessons from Abram. We're going to learn lessons from Sarai. And we can do that in part by looking back to Genesis 3. And verses 4 through 6 say this. It doesn't take rocket science to see a connection here. In Genesis 3, Eve took the lead, but did you know that in the New Testament it's called Adam's sin? Often, he's the one identified. Because why? Because he was there. And he should have instructed, and he should have said and protected, and he he failed in his responsibilities. Abram is a partner in disobedience in this story. Adam passively partnered. Abram isn't so passive. He's a little more more proactive. He's fully cooperative in trying to bring about a child in the wrong way uh, with the wrong person. But in our desperation, often we can pull other people in because they are desperate too. So, another layer I want to touch on in why this happened in the partnering and disobedience is that they did something culturally that everybody would have accepted. Doesn't that sound crazy to us? I have a wife, and she's childless, and so the solution is, we'll try to have a child through the, the maidservant in the house. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Well, in our world, a whole lot doesn't really sound ridiculous anymore. But listen, it, it should sound ridiculous. But in their culture, it was something that everybody would have said, hey, okay. That's a, a fine way. That's an acceptable way to make a child according to their culture. And we may scratch our heads and wonder, in our desperation, do we try to just go along with things and and just not look too much different than everybody else, because generally these are culturally accepted things. I think sometimes when we're in the moment, we're blind to what some of those things really are. It takes great discernment and great intentionality to know the threats our culture makes to us as Bible-believing Christians. Sometimes they're obvious. Sometimes they're not. As I think about U.S. history, one of the things that confounds me the most is the owning of human beings for economic gain. For a long time... In our church's history, there was a a widespread operation where human beings were stolen from another continent, brought here to North America in awful conditions on boats. And then when they got here, those people, based on how they were sized up and their physical... What they, what they could offer as laborers, they were sold for money at exchanges and often were torn apart at the nuclear family level for economic gain. Now, we sit here and we think, I hope we're thinking, yes, this is disastrous. But it went on for a long time. And I'm sad to say, that if you read your history, you will find some, if not many, from within the Christian church during that time who backed the structure and refused to speak out against it. There were spiritual leaders, pastors, who participated in that structure and owned human beings of another race. From another continent got heavy in here for a minute we have to think about this we can't look back and think Abram and Sarah are crazy for trying to bring somebody about this way in our own nation's history people did something that today I hope we find abominable in our hearts but not only was it widely culturally accepted in many ways Those claiming to be Christians in the church walked right along with the process and benefited from it. So we have to ask ourselves how do we partner? In what ways do we try to culturally compromise? There is something to obedience in God. This story stands in contrast. Back, remember when, when Abram won the battle and he rescued his nephew Lot and he came back and the king of Sodom tempted him? Do you remember that? The king of Sodom said, hey, basically give some glory to me. We'll split this up and it'll be great. That was another culturally accepted thing to do. And Abram said, I don't think so. This victory belongs to God. And in that one, he got it right. And so we'll praise Abram for getting it right, but part of this is we have to have some framework where people who are noticed and recognizable in God's work fail. We have to be able to save this. We have to have something in us where we don't have a view of someone that they are perfect. Next couple Sunday nights, we're going to delve into this. It's been particularly close to my heart recently. It's difficult. It's a tough topic. But we have to see it, and we have to know the dangers. We have to see the flares. We have to say, God, help me not to compromise. And so we don't want to partner in sin just because it's culturally acceptable, We want to obey God on His terms. Let's be strong leaders in our homes. Men of character, women of faith, pursuing holiness and obedience, showing our children what it really means to follow Jesus. So Abram partnered in disobedience and he whiffed on his responsibility. I had to put that word up there. There's nothing more embarrassing than standing at the plate and trying to hit the thing and it comes and you whiff. It's really embarrassing in church league slow-pitch softball. I've done it. I can admit that to you. That thing's a floating beach ball, and I just swung and missed. I hear you can. <laughs> All right. All right. Abram abdicated. He should have told his wife, no, this isn't what the Lord wants. He said there'd be a promise. He said there'd be a child. No, I'm not going to go along with this. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He failed her. He failed Hagar. And there was... All kinds of difficulty came out of this sin. The result, then, is is shame. Can we say that, that, that when we sin, that there's some shame? It's a matter of what we do with it. Would we feel better about this if this wasn't on the track record? Would we feel better about this if Abram didn't get it wrong? This isn't the first time he got it wrong. Would we feel better somehow? I want to encourage you. At some level, this is what makes the Bible real to me. We don't have a book that lifts our spiritual heroes up as perfect gods. We have a book that gets into the nitty-gritty of life and desperation and shows that sometimes we don't get it right. Sometimes we wilt under the pressure. I'm actually encouraged by that, but either way, there's, there's shame and it's a matter of what we do with it. I don't want us to underestimate the failure. I don't want us to just be okay with failure. If shame leads to change, then God can shape us and mold us. If you aren't quite sure how this arc uh, that we're on between Genesis 12 and uh, 22, 23 uh, ends, we see Abram uh, as, as more faithful than this. He He learns. The shame uh, would lead to, to change, but uh, Abram made a, a real mess of things, and he wasn't the only one that bore consequence, and so he missed that, that responsibility. So here's our challenge for today. We're moving toward closing. Do we really trust God? A couple things here. It's a very easy question. You might be facing a desperate situation right now where you don't know what's going to happen question is, do we really trust God? Okay, so in one way, that is, do I really trust that Jesus has come and suffered and bled and died and was buried in a tomb and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of my sin, our sin as believers, and for the, the promise, the guarantee of eternal life in heaven? Is that really true? Do I really believe that? I really believe that my life is to be lived in honor and glory of the one who died for me? And that I would pray that the Holy Spirit would make me more like him all the time? Do I trust that promise that God has done it or am I still trying to make it up somehow myself? still trying to impress God or outdo the person next to me so I feel better? Do I really trust the promise of God that he has saved me, he loves me, he will provide for me, and he will do it? Because he is God and I am not. Do I really trust that, number one? Number two, do I really trust that there is forgiveness and that when people in my life and around me fall or make mistakes big and small... various levels and influence, that he can really move through it? Do I really believe that? Do I have a framework that says, this person let me down? And because that happened, I'm not going to leave and go to a different church. I'm going to stick it out, and I'm going to pray for their best, and that they'll learn from it, and I can help them and be a part of that, and we can communicate. Is that part of our framework? Do we really trust that God can do work and move people through difficulty? It's going to continue to be a theme. Get used to it. It's right here in Genesis. Okay, so that's number one for our challenge. And second today, are we challenged to supernatural obedience? I hope we'd all look at this and say, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to make these mistakes. I don't want to fail in the pressure cooker of sin. If that's the case, then what the New Testament says is, listen, folks, you can't do this on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit who comes and lives and dwells, who's literally deposited in you to fight. If you're trying to obey, you're trying to walk a path where you feel desperate and you don't know how it's going to turn out and things have happened that you didn't ask for, and you can't figure it out, and you feel desperate. You're not going to obey by getting a little pick-me-up from the ice cream stand. You're not going to obey because somebody did a nice little encouragement. You're going to obey because God himself lives inside of you and will carry you when there's absolutely no way you can carry yourself. That's it. That's supernatural obedience. That's what we should seek in response to this. Go back and reread the end of chapter 15. See how amazing that spiritual high had to have been, and see how quickly the pressure cooker made it unfold. But let's also see that we worship a God who can restore. We're going to spend some time in prayer this morning, and as we do that, I haven't prepared for this sermon just thinking oh I'll be done and we'll all go home I've prepared God would you speak specifically to anyone who would be here this morning a long obedience a difficult time a situation where you feel desperate maybe somebody's there right this moment and we need time and space to deal with that let's go to the Lord and let's work in prayer And we'll ask ourselves these challenges. Do we really trust him? Are we really asking for an obedience that's bigger than our own? Let's pray.